Chapter One of The First American Sister of Charity, Elizabeth Bailey Seaton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The First American Sister of Charity, Elizabeth Bailey Seaton by John Clement Reveal. Chapter One A Lady of Old New York the year seventeen seventy four marks an epoch in the history of the united states scarcely less memorable than the one which gave to the world the declaration of independence the events of seventeen seventy four prepared the way for the heroic deeds of seventeen seventy six the boston tea party of seventeen seventy three had made the english government realize that the colonies must be cowed or that an appeal to arms was the only outcome the intolerable acts of seventeen seventy four attempted to accomplish the first purpose one closed the port of boston until the town should pay for the tea so summarily thrown overboard from the english ships a second the regulating act remodeled the charter of massachusetts and attempted to destroy those free institutions which were so dearly prized by the people a third the administration of justice act provided that any british soldier accused of murder in putting down riots or while enforcing the revenue laws might be taken for trial to another colony or to great britain a fourth the quartering act imposed english soldiers as unwelcome guests on american householders and the fifth or quebec act extended the boundaries of that province southward to the ohio river thus as the colonists claimed ignoring the rights of massachusetts connecticut new york and virginia and doing away within that territory with such cherished institutions as the popular meeting and the freedom of the press the intolerable acts roused the spirit of the people from virginia in reply came the suggestion for a general congress to deliberate on those measures which the united interests of america may from time to time require at the call of massachusetts the first continental congress assembled at carpenter's hall philadelphia september fifth seventeen seventy four Fifty-five delegates from every colony, Georgia accepted, answered the summons. Massachusetts sent John and Samuel Adams, Connecticut, her shoemaker statesman, Roger Sherman, Pennsylvania, John Dickinson, New York, John Jay, South Carolina was represented by Christopher Gadsden and John Rutledge, while Virginia sent Richard Henry Lee, Patrick Henry, and the man who was a host and a congress in himself the incomparable washington the first continental congress exercised a powerful influence on the destinies of america without it the work of the second continental congress would never have been accomplished it prepared the way for the crowning act of that body the protest of an entire nation that it would no longer submit to tyranny the nation has seen no more stirring times than those in which these great events were taking place the very spirit of liberty seemed to be borne through the land everywhere lighting the flame of high resolve in the breasts of its citizens 
great things were being done for that most sacred of all causes after the cause of god himself human freedom and progress it was amidst these throes that the american republic came into being only a few days before the first continental congress assembled at philadelphia a child was born whose life and example were to exercise a large influence on the destinies of the catholic church in the country which washington and jefferson were trying to save from tyranny that child elizabeth ann bailey was born in new york city on the twenty eighth of august seventeen seventy four she is better known as that mother seton whose calm and sweet image appears on the very first pages of the history of the catholic church in our country reminding us of an epic age and epic deeds in both church and state she was the second of the three daughters of a distinguished physician dr richard bailey and of Catherine Charlton, his first wife. The Baileys and the Charltons were well-known members of the best society of early New York. In the beginning of the struggle of the colonies with the mother country, the Baileys were staunch loyalists. But when the contest was over and the former dependencies of Great Britain became the free, sovereign, and independent United States of America, Dr. Bailey threw in his lot with the new republic and became one of its most loyal citizens he had left no doubt as to his sympathies with england during the struggle the war over no one ever doubted his loyalty to the united states his service as first health officer of the port of new york and his sympathetic and unceasing labors for the sick in the quarantine station on staten island can never be forgotten stirring times were those in which little elizabeth bailey played down by the battery where the citizens strolled to watch the ships swing up the harbor or trudged to school with the little misses of the better class or later on from the heights of craigdon her father-in-law's country house on the neck of land that is now forty-third street between eleventh avenue and the hudson looked down on that beautiful river and watched the ships riding at anchor she was only two years old when king george's redcoats marched into the city which they held from seventeen seventy six to seventeen eighty three the din of war sounded around her cradle and if she slumbered peacefully while howe and washington were locked in the death struggle of long island others feared and trembled for her she was nine years old when she saw the british regiments march out from the city that they so long held from some window along the way or held perhaps by a friendly hand in some crowded street she watched other troops marching in the ragged but indomitable veterans of washington and the great virginian at their head she saw the british flag hauled down and the stars and stripes flung to the breeze the heart of the little maid must have felt a sensation of genuine pride as it was unfolded before her and she heard thousands loudly hailing it as the emblem of justice and liberty that year seventeen eighty three elizabeth's fellow new yorker washington irving was born the child lost her mother when she was three years old 
her stepmother a member of that barclay family whose name is perpetuated to this day in new york by a well-known thoroughfare was strongly attracted to her and to some extent if that be possible took the place of the dead catherine charlton the mother so early lost but whose image still lingered in her daughter's heart but good dr bailey was betty's idol while the kindly physician was mother guide philosopher and friend to his bright and attractive daughter if betty was sent to the rather formal and unprogressive schools of the metropolis it was from her father that she learned most as far as his duties would allow he presided over her studies his word was law the little new yorker liked neither french nor music and independent american that she was flung her music book and her grammar aside declaring that she would have no such foreign importations but dr bailey was an old-fashioned father and even miss elizabeth ann bailey loved petted and idled though she was was not to be the mistress in his household a word of warning soon brought the wayward little rebel back to the hated french and the neglected piano a man of sterling character of the highest integrity of a charity that knew no bounds fearless in the performance of his duties as an army surgeon and in the presence of the contagious diseases that too often ravaged the city dr bailey had but one fault he had been tainted by the false philosophy of the age by the deism of rousseau and voltaire his religion seems to have been that which too often rules the conduct of otherwise high-minded and noble-hearted men service to humanity such a religion is inadequate and unjust for it looks to the present only and neglects the creator dr bailey's daughter seems for a very brief moment to have been dazzled by the glittering sophisms of rousseau and his school but she was too deeply religious to remain long under that malignant spell she was reared in an atmosphere of strict episcopalianism but her soul was naturally catholic in her innocent girlhood and during that painful stage of her married life when in a foreign land she watched like an angel of consolation over the last moments of her dying husband we can see how deeply attached she was to the religion in which she was brought up what unconsciously attracted her in it was that element of catholicism which it still retained belief in the divinity of christ and attachment to his sacred person already as a child and when growing to womanhood she is strongly drawn to him after the bible which she reads on the seashore and in the quiet recesses of craigden or new rochelle she loves the imitation of christ and tries to regulate her life according to its lessons she wears a little crucifix over her heart the holy name has for her an irresistible charm she bows reverently at its sacred sound that distinctively catholic doctrine that tells us that guardian spirits watch over our steps appeals strongly to her and she commends her acts and her life to these heavenly protectors she yearns to be incorporated into christ by the participation of his sacred body and blood although the episcopal church can offer her nothing else but the shadow of that life-giving body 
even for that she hungers and prepares with the greatest fervor for the reception of the empty elements of the bread and wine how admirably this foreshadows the fervor which she will approach the altar later on in life when under the sacramental species she will receive really and truly and not merely in image and in shadow the body and the blood of her lord but childhood and girlhood passed with thousands of her fellow-citizens elizabeth bailey then in her fifteenth year witnessed the inauguration in new york of george washington as president of the united states it was the thirtieth of april seventeen eighty nine the inauguration took place at federal hall on the corner of wall and broad streets it was noon and the great virginian accompanied by chancellor livingston adams hamilton knox steuben and st clair stepped forth on the balcony after livingston had pronounced the oath of office washington kissed the bible and solemnly swore to keep and safeguard the constitution of the united states the official recorder of the proceedings was thomas lloyd a catholic a former student at st omer under the jesuits carroll and john leonard neal from the notes taken down by him the address of our first president was given to the public thomas lloyd is rightly called the father of american stenography it was one of his boasts that at st omer he had acquired not only his ability at shorthand but his republican principles the solemnity of the scene must have deeply impressed the susceptible mind of the young girl a crisis had come in the nation's life one was facing her it was time for elizabeth bailey to decide what her future career should be her social position admitted her into the inner circles of fashionable society cultured and refined gentle and singularly affectionate she united to grace of form and charm of manner unusual strength of character and that easy self-control which she had learned from her father she was rather small in stature says one of her biographers but slenderly and gracefully formed her face with finely cut features and lit by brilliant black eyes was framed with masses of dark curling hair her presence breathed refinement and innocence she had lived through stirring and trying times under the reserve of her perfect womanliness there were the warm heart and the sprightliness of a childlike nature unconscious of evil admirers and suitors came of their going and coming and lingering we have little record the young girl was waiting for the man to whom without fear or scruple she could give her hand and heart and entrust her happiness and her life he came at last it was william mcgee seaton eldest son of william seaton a wealthy new york merchant who in his later years was cashier of the old bank of new york of which president roosevelt's grandfather was president william mcgee seaton had all that elizabeth bailey's heart could desire the name he bore had long been famous in scottish romance and story he had wealth and social position he was a refined and cultured gentleman miss bailey made her choice calmly deliberately 
and if her heart dictated that choice it was ruled and controlled by her reason and her faith to william seaton she gave herself entirely in the bloom of her maidenhood and innocence with a childlike and nobly romantic trust that never faltered a model daughter she became a model bride the marriage of the youthful couple for the bride was not yet twenty years old took place in john street new york the ceremony being performed by dr provost the episcopalian bishop of new york william seaton carried his young wife to his father's house and into her new family elizabeth seaton came as an angel of comfort and joy to the shrewd and kindly old merchant she came as a beloved daughter an adviser and friend the younger brothers and sisters of her husband loved her as a second mother while in the eldest unmarried daughter of the house rebecca seaton the young matron found the friend of her soul in the autumn of seventeen ninety four the year that saw john jay negotiate his famous treaty with england and mad anthony wayne deal a death blow to the treacherous indians at fallen timbers the young couple moved to number eight state street to a house which at present is the mission of our lady of the rosary for the protection of irish immigrant girls here in may seventeen ninety five elizabeth gave birth to a daughter the child was named anna maria four other children subsequently blessed the union william richard bailey catherine and rebecca we cannot but admire the providence of god when we read the truly idyllic pages of this part of mrs seaton's life god was working wonders in this pure and unselfish soul her husband her children her household duties her father the new family with which she was in daily contact the poor her domestics these absorbed her energies and called upon all her love the duties of the mother and the wife the cares of the mistress of a full household the works of charity she performed among the poor of the city were preparing the heart and the soul of the elizabeth seaton for her nun's life in the cloistered peace of emmitsburg even now her deep faith her love of her redeemer and her longing for his presence and his grace in her soul her zeal and piety were foreshadowing the sanctity of future days calmly glided the early years of elizabeth seaton's married life proud of her young husband prouder if possible of the happy brood of children that crowded her nursery floor she saw no cloud on the horizon those were sunny days as they sauntered down to the battery to watch the ever-changing waters of the changeless sea or rested under the shade of the cregdon trees or sailed up the noble river under the mighty ramparts of the palisades the young bride and mother little dreaming that there on that eminence a few miles from the city of her birth an eminence then crowned with the banners of a noble forest a cloistered pile would one day rise and the voices of the young and of a thousand and more of her spiritual daughters would be lifted up to call her blessed but trial comes to all the friends of god by it he tests the vigor of their faith the strength of their loyalty and their love it came to william seaton's bride 
In June 1798, her loved father-in-law died. Elizabeth mourned over him as over another father. A heavier blow awaited her. In the summer of 1801, yellow fever appeared in New York. Dr. Bailey was at his post of danger. As health officer of the port, he was untiring in his labors to stem the disease and to help the fever-stricken. While attending to a band of Irish immigrants whose marvelous faith and resignation to their wretched fate deeply impressed him, he was himself attacked by the contagion. The anguish of Elizabeth was heartbreaking. She had been her father's darling. He had been her idol and her playmate, her best friend. He was dying, almost without a thought of God or his blessed Son, the Redeemer of the world. What could she do for him? Gladly would that incomparable daughter have given up her own life that her father might not die without some sign of faith and repentance. Her own life was as nothing to such a gain. But the young mother had something more precious to give. Bending over the cradle, where her little Catherine was sleeping, she lifted the innocent babe in her arms and offered her darling's life to God for the salvation of her father's soul. The child was spared, but when he felt the last moment come, Dr. Bailey repeated, with every sign of faith and love, the sacred name, which Elizabeth, kneeling at his side, was murmuring in his ear. But still another blow was to fall. The death of the elder Seton had deprived his son of a wise and prudent guide. Young Seton had many ventures forth, but they that carry on their business in ships on the treacherous seas are seldom safe from the bitter jests of fortune. The ordinary vicissitudes of commerce and the war, or rather threat of war between France and the United States, caused a suspension of trade with French ports. The Seton firm was threatened with financial failure. The anxieties and worries which were the natural results of these reverses grievously affected the health of Mr. Seton. In all his troubles, Elizabeth stood courageously at his side. Her husband's trials were hers. With him, if necessary, she would share the most trying lot. Poverty, loss of social position and prestige. What was all that while they had their mutual love and the affection of their children? Never was the mother and the wife more heroic, more unselfish. Every social pleasure she gave up. Every absolutely unnecessary expense was gradually curtailed. They had lived in something like luxury. They now were satisfied with the lot of the poor. Not once did the affection, the tenderness, the buoyancy, the soul-deep loyalty of this admirable woman fail. Her trust in God was the trust of the great saints, of Teresa of Jesus, and the little flower, of Francis de Chantal, and Margaret Mary, and the great saint, of whom unconsciously she was already the spiritual daughter, Vincent de Paul. But William Seton's health was shattered. To regain it was absolutely necessary if he were to make good the heavy losses of the last year. In his early youth he had visited Italy, and in the course of business had become acquainted with the family of merchant princes, the Felicis of Leghorn. His physician had told the sufferer that a sea voyage might restore his waning health. 
Time and again the Felicis had offered him the hospitality of their home. It was now a duty for the patient to accept the generous offer. He resolved to make the journey. Elizabeth could not think for a moment of abandoning him. Whatever his fate, she would share it, sickness or stormy sea, loneliness or death. When she had plighted her troth to William Seaton, it had been no idle word, nor empty ceremony. She meant to fulfill it to the letter. She had made the promise before God. He would give her the courage and strength to carry it through. On him she relied, and on her love. Neither was to fail her. She thought it wise to let her eldest child, Anna Maria, now nine years old, accompany her. To her, Anna Maria would be a help, to the suffering husband, a companion, and a source of joy. The preparations were made. On October 2nd, 1803, the little party boarded the shepherdess bound for Leghorn. A sturdy and kindly Irish seaman, Captain O'Brien, name of happy omen, as we shall see, for Elizabeth Seaton commanded the little vessel. The voyage was uneventful. Six weeks after, the shepherdess dropped anchor in the harbor of Leghorn. End of chapter 1